0: Welcome to the Weekend Writing Podcast, where writers read flash fiction.
1: Most intriguing, though, was what was written by the ex. It read, buried treasure.
2: If he didn't know any better, he would have thought that the computer sounded concerned.
3: Long ago, he had learned how to move on, and that regret was a weed sown in yesterday's choices. I'm
0: John Nedwell.
4: And I'm Sylvan Drake.
3: Come on,
0: John, come out. No, there's nothing fun to do. I'm sick of this
4: lockdown. You can't spend the rest of the pandemic in the closet. Oh, yes, I can. Come out. I've got a box of chocolates. They were on sale because no one cares about Valentine's Day this year. We can throw away the guide that tells us which flavour is which and play chocolate Russian roulette. Chocolates, you say? Well, all right. Here, try this one. Hmm,
0: caramel.
4: See, this is fun. Plus, we have the whole podcast to listen to to cheer us up. And I have to say, this podcast is a little bit mishy-mashy. <laughs>
0: it is a bit, yes.
4: We have sci-fi. We have a little bit of romance. We have love that's being spurned. That's like almost getting us to Valentine's Day, but really. And then we have the Olympics. Uh, oh, and then we have some some Bolshevik revolutionaries. <laughs> Some yes. communi- we have some communism in this episode i mean i don't think we've had any of that before <laughs> maybe just to reflect the state of the world what do you think it means john what do you think it means
0: i think it means that people are in turmoil at the minute nobody knows what to expect
4: yeah you know february is not a good month for a lot of people it's it's dark it's cold it's a short in, the month. Northern, in the northern hemisphere it is a short month thankfully but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a slog. Maybe, maybe people will be more hopeful in March and April.
0: Maybe they will. And what is it they say? April showers bring May flowers?
4: Or at least more vaccinations. And you know what they...
3: <laughs> Dinner. Written and read by Lamplighter, 1890. Written for the prompt, End. Ramon reached over grabbed the salt shaker, and robotically shook the tiny white crystals onto his plate of meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and green beans. The meal was bland, as usual, but his dinner's mediocre quality was not what was on his mind this evening. He had just made a big decision, and now he was thinking about the conversation that awaited him as a consequence. It was a decision about endings and beginnings, Sitting by himself, he looked at his plate and thought about all the meals he had eaten alone. Dinners eaten after a long day at work, alone in the kitchen, his plate carefully saved in a refrigerator by his wife. Then later, after his wife and kids had left him, dinners eaten alone in crowded restaurants. They were meals that marked the end, like the Last Supper, But every ending brought a beginning, and he smiled as he remembered dinners that were an excuse to meet a woman, the meal a starting point in a new relationship. He poked at his overcooked green beans and debated how he would approach Lynn with the news that he intended to end their relationship. Many times before, he had been in this position as both the bearer and the receiver of such news And despite his experience in the matter, it never got any easier. Long ago, he had learned how to move on, and that regret was a weed sown in yesterday's choices. He wasn't saying goodbye to Lynn on a whim. Quite the contrary, as he had found love in a woman named Amanda. Lynn was a nice woman. In fact, she reminded him of his last wife, "'but the spark he sought shine brightly in Amanda. "'It was wonderful to experience that feeling again, "'particularly in the defiance of the odds "'and the hourglass allied against him. "'Use it well or waste it. "'The sand will continue to fall. "'Mr. Garcia, Mr. Garcia, are you done with your plate?' "'asked the young man cleaning the dining room tables.' Ramon had arrived late, just before the dining hall had closed, and was the last resident in the dining room. He took a look at his half-eaten meatloaf and nodded to the busboy, who promptly collected the plate and silverware. Not hungry tonight, huh? said the busboy as he smiled, loaded the dishes into his cart, and moved on to another table. Ramon Garcia grabbed his walker, "'leaned on the apparatus and slowly stood up, "'his weathered and arthritic hands "'contrasting with the smooth silver aluminum of the walker. "'He hobbled out of the dining hall "'on two bad knees and a hip that was pending replacement "'and into the all-purpose room "'where Friday night's bingo game had started. "'Lynn saw him and waved. "'He saw that she had saved him a chair. "'He waved back, and looked at the empty chair of their end.
1: Legacy by Paul Wesley I found it in the romance book I'd just started. I turned the page and there it was, a piece of old yellow paper carefully folded in half and wedged into the binding. I opened it and saw what appeared to be a map of some sort drawn in pencil with a red X in the middle. There were roads with road names I didn't recognise and a straight line drawn perpendicular from a house number on one of the streets, and another line from another street and a third all intersecting at the X. Most intriguing though was what was written by the X. It read, Buried Treasure. I stared at it for a while, having all sorts of wild thoughts, then decided it was probably nothing and tried to get back to reading. I couldn't concentrate, my mind constantly jumping back to that piece of paper. I finally could stand it no longer, jumped out of bed and headed for the laptop. I googled the street names and discovered it was a small village called Broadville, thirty miles away. The red X appeared to be in a graveyard. My first thought was to call Jake. What are we doing this weekend? Oh, what? Claire, you know what time it is? It's late. Sorry. So you free? Want to go on a treasure hunt? you been drinking? I explained to Jacob about the note and he tried to convince me that I was crazy but he knew I was relentless once I got an idea in my head. That Saturday we headed off to Broadville. It turned out to be a beautiful little village with an equally beautiful old church and the graveyard where my fortune was buried. From the satellite maps I knew the exact spot to dig. Unfortunately I soon discovered that location was right under an old tombstone. Doris Wilkes, Rest in Peace, 1917-1998. Well that's that then, no way we be digging up a grave, Jake sounded adamant about that. Of course I knew he was right, but then I noticed a small stone chalice about six inches high in front of the tombstone. I peered in, it looked to be filled with dirt and leaves, do you think we should touch it? Jake argued that we should leave it alone except I could tell even he was curious now, and so we convinced ourselves it would be okay. I sunk my fingers into the chalice. At the bottom, I felt an object. I pulled out an antique silver ring containing a small diamond. We both gasped. I looked at Jake, but I already knew the answer. We can't keep this, can we? Jake turned towards the tombstone. What do you think, Doris? Really? She can keep it? Jake, what is wrong with you? I'm putting it back. No, really, you can keep it. Just before Grandma Doris died, she told me to hold on to it. Until I found the girl I wanted to marry. Hi,
5: this is Tom Walborn. For this edition of the Weekend Brighton in Podcast, I wanted to lighten the mood a little. We have enough doom and gloom going around right now, so I thought I would look forward to the upcoming 2021 Olympics. Here is the Molaski Maneuver. Welcome back to our continuing coverage of the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. I am Phil Norris. We now join Mike Malloy and Frank Fournier at the Supermarket Sweep event, currently in progress. Frank. Our next competitor in the 100-yard market dash is a 35-year-old single mom from Cleveland, Marsha Moloski. She did well in the qualifiers and had her best time ever on her practice run yesterday. Now this event is a combination of a running sprint combined with the grace of a figure skater and the mental acumen of a world-class accountant. She must keep her purchases to $100 as she executes a mandatory list of staples and five optional items she has touched on speed, accuracy, style, and nutritional value. Of course, she loses points if she is over or under the 100. Here she goes.
6: Like Marcia has a good chance of meddling in this event. Oh, look, she has chosen the cart with the wobbly wheel. That will gain her extra points. I was watching her practice run yesterday, and she... Wow! Look at that form. She is leaning on the left side of her cart to keep that loose wheel up off the ground, and she has literally flew around the corner. She is approaching the juices. Yes. Yes. Very nice. She is equally adept with her right hand or her left. Notice how she snatched that juice bottle with her left hand and flipped it into her cart without slowing down.
5: That's right, Frank. She chose the juice bottle because she could get her hand around the neck. Grabbing a carton would have slowed her down a bit, even though it would have been a couple pennies cheaper. By the way, that is called amidextrous. Huh? Using either hand. She is amidextrous. It comes from...
6: Mike, I'm not sure what I just saw there. She's in the canned vegetable aisle and her hand just shot out and grabbed... What was that? Is that a can of beets? Yes, Amazon Cart just confirmed a can of beets was added to her cart. That is a strange choice for an optional pick. Remember, she only gets five.
5: She is on the back stretch now. She is very strong in this area. Chicken and beef are both required. She has picked up half a second here. Oh, oh, she just spotted the tuna sale on the end cap. She's getting two for the price of one. This will save her some time as she doesn't have to go down the canned meat aisle.
6: Not to mention an extra point for the bargain. Mike, she has two hazards and a compulsory move yet to do. She's coming up on the turn. Beautiful. She avoided that freestanding display and threaded between two loaded carts without touching either one. Very nice. Every athlete must do a spin in mid aisle to represent going back for forgotten items. The requirement is that both feet must be off the ground. She may have a problem with this because of that wobbly wheel. Let's see how she executes this. Absolutely amazing! She did a modified sit-spin, but look at that! She pulled back and put the cart on its back two wheels. A full 360 with perfect balance and beautiful form.
5: Frank, one final challenge ahead. Mike, this is the
6: cream corn challenge. She must get a can of cream corn from the stacked display without knocking over any of the remaining cans. Now that stack is six and a half feet high and Marsha's only five foot two. She has to get one from the top levels. She's approaching it now. Oh my gosh! Did you see that? What did she do there?
5: Frank, look at that. She took a can from a lower tier and slid in the canned beets to maintain the stack integrity.
6: Incredible! Can she do that? What do the rules say?
5: Well, Frank, that's one for the judges. She is approaching checkout now. A very nice run. She could well be in podium contention. While we wait for the judges to rule on the Moloski Maneuver, we will take a quick break. 2021 Olympics will be right back after a word from our 32 sponsors.
7: Revolutionary Values by John Nedwell. Were you followed, comrade? Ulyanov shook the St. Petersburg snow from his coat and shook his head. Of course not. Do you think I am an amateur Bronstein? But the Okrana came the protest. Ulyanov raised a hand and glared at his fellow revolutionary. I know how to deal with the guard, he said. They hold no terrors for me. I have been interrogated by them before. Remember, they took my brother. Bronstein peered over his glasses to Ulyanov. Very well, he said, and pulled aside the thick burlap curtain that covered the door that led into the coffee house. We are all gathered. Come on in. The interior of the coffee house was warm. A great fire blazed in the hearth, and the steam from large copper jugs of coffee added to the thick atmosphere in the small room. A group of men, their expressions furtive and worried, were clustered around a table close to the fire. They looked up as Ulyanov greeted them. Comrades? There was a chorus of acknowledgement. Zedebaum waved at Ulyanov to sit down. We are deciding a manifesto. There's been much debate about the values that we stand for. Really? Ulyanov glared at Zederbaum. I thought that we had decided to follow the tenets of Marx and Engels. Is there some dissent? Not with those, zader replied, but with the changes that you have proposed. There are some of our members who find your philosophy ideologically unsound. Unsound? There was a menacing tone to the response. There is nothing unsound about what I propose. We need to establish a dictatorship of the proletariat. "'It is a necessary step before we can bring about socialism.' "'He declared at the people gathered around the table. "'Only two of them dared meet his gaze. Zaderbaum and the Georgian Dukashvili. "'The rest looked away. "'Perhaps,' said Zaderbaum calmly. "'But surely Marxism is ruled by the proletariat. "'When the workers hold the means of production, "'then their authorities are given. "'Who are we to oppose the will of the people? "'And you would side with Macno?' "'Of course not.' Zaderbaum looked scandalised. Anarchy is no solution to our problems. Yes, his followers are useful tools, but no more. No, we must raise the consciousness of the proletariat so they rebel against the imperialists, but we must not replace one tyranny with another. And what do you know of the proletariat? Ulyanov pointed an accusing finger at Zaderbaum. You're a child of privilege. Do you know any workers? Do any of you know any workers? He glared at the other revolutionaries. Bronstein raised a hand. I think I know one, he said.
2: Warning, the computer declared from the speakers to his left and right. The following systems are offline. Reentry control, navigation, communications, primary oxygen generator... Secondary oxygen generator. Astronaut Bill Pippins leaned back in his command chair and listened as the computer rattled off a list of inoperative systems. If he didn't know any better, he would have thought that the computer sounded concerned. But he did know better. Behind the busy circuit panels and flashing control switches was just the computer processor passing information along in as perfunctory and indifferent a way as it knew how. Completely apathetic to Bill's current flight. Damn micrometeoroids, he thought, sifting through his bag for the Cuban cigar he had been saving for when his spacecraft completed what was supposed to be a routine landing in the Pacific Ocean. They ruin everything. Ah, here it is. He opened the small silver tin that was now in his lap and pulled out the cigar and its faithful companions, the cigar cutter and lighter. He released the tin, which seemed to suspend briefly in the air before the momentum it gained from the release helped it to abandon its captor for another part of the vessel. His spacecraft was currently at a serene 120 miles above the Earth, but quickly closing the gap to where re-entry would begin, 62 miles. Normally this wouldn't be a problem. In a world where a tightly-knit group of micro-meteoroids hadn't punctured the bay containing all the electronics for the advanced computer systems piloting the craft, the auto-navigation systems would have already activated by now. Safely strapped into a seat, his only job would have been to sit back and enjoy the ride. Except that world wasn't the one Bill lived in, and he was now plummeting towards the earth at over 15,000 miles per hour. About five minutes or so, I reckon, Bill said aloud. He put his feet up onto the console in front of him, lit the cigar, inhaled, paused, and then exhaled. A silver stream of smoke from the cigar joined with his expelled breath and hung in front of him. He waved a hand through the cloud, and it dispersed. He listened for a moment. The silence was eerie to him. For the past two days, he had heard the sound of bustling generators, chattering communication systems, and whirring fans. Now, it was deathly still. The calm before the storm, Bill thought, raising the cigar once more. In a few minutes, the spacecraft would enter the atmosphere. The cabin would quickly heat in the absence of the systems that controlled the internal temperature of the cabin. And the spacecraft unable to withstand the strain of an uncontrolled re-entry, would disintegrate in a fiery shower of debris. He wondered if anyone would be able to see it. Almost exactly five minutes later, a seven-year-old staring out in the clear night sky of his rural Kansas town made a wish on a shooting star.
8: This is Who We Are by J. H. Foliage. You stand in the middle of the snow-dusted square, waiting for a rare streak of sunlight to pierce through the clouds and reveal the person you've been searching for. Would it be so romantic? Could it be? Would you deserve it? You long for how it used to be, back when you embraced the stairs with mirth and even pride back when the light he brought in your life was all that mattered. You'd walk the streets with him, arm in arm, and feel like both of you were on top of the world. But maybe that was an illusion. Maybe you fooled yourself in thinking you could handle the jokes and snide comments thrown your way, while inside, it ate at you until you couldn't bear it any longer. It was why you hid for so long in the first place. The fateful day came when you finally measured the distance between him and the rest of the world. You made your choice. You wanted to be like them and not him. You wanted to be normal. And perhaps that was the reason you were doomed from the start, because what you wanted was impossible. The crowd shifts, subtly so, but you've learned to read human movements like ripples on a pond. Perhaps it was instinct, and not himself who told you were there he catches your eye then the crowd parts and suddenly neither of you are invisible to the other time slows down and speeds up at the same time with five quick strides you and the man are within arms reach you take in his coat slacks and boots the things that the average person would wear during a cold spell things that he would never wear the things that are too quiet too mundane too ordinary for this man's kind of wonderful. You begin to cry. Was this the wrong thing to wear, too, the man asks. You shake your head and cry harder. Strong firm hands guide you through the blurry crowd to a metal bench. A soft handkerchief presses against your face. Your tears are gently wiped away before the air can turn them into bits of ice. But when your vision clears, all you can see is what's left of the man whose heart you broke. His voice tickles your ear. Hey, listen to me, Kay. I have this nasty cough, and it's killing my throat. If you keep crying, you're going to leave me with no choice but to sing. And I'm warning you now, it'll be bad. You chuckle, though the moment is fleeting. The handkerchief flutters in the breeze and you manage to catch it before a sudden gust of air whisks it away. It's smeared with your carefully applied concealer. The shame brings fresh tears to your eyes, but you blink them away. I miss you, you say finally. I miss being with you. Me? Which me? The man who wears leopard prints and fuzzy slippers, you say. The man who dances whenever a catchy song comes on the of speakers. The man who can dress and act like himself because he doesn't give a damn about what other people think. You drag in a breath. I don't expect us to return to whatever we were before, but I just- I want you to know that I know what I said was wrong and hurtful. I'm sorry he nods silently considering your words then he stands up in one fluid motion the man you loved takes off his sweater to reveal the outfit underneath a neon paint splattered shirt decorated with sequins and gold glitter then he slips off his hood on his head sits a hand knit rainbow colored beanie matching paper cutouts dangle from his ears several people have stopped it in their tracks to gawk. He sits back down beside you. And despite yourself, you smile. You've taken up arts and crafts, too? It's never too late to learn, he replies. He drums his fingers on the bench, thinking. I've thought about that day ever since, he begins. And I'd be lying if I say you didn't hurt me. But you were the first lady to accept me as who I am. That hasn't changed. So I don't think it was a mistake that once again we've ended up together." His gaze lingers on your face. You're beautiful, you know, he says softly. Slowly you reach up to touch the side of your face. Your skin feels dry and exposed in the cold air. And that's when you realize your makeup is gone. Your finger traces the pale patch of skin on your otherwise brown face. Your stomach knots itself into a tangle of thoughts and emotions. What was he thinking? Why didn't you bring a scarf just in case? What are other people going to say when they see you? But mixed in with the embarrassment and the fear was a strange, airy feeling. The feeling of freedom. relief as if you've stepped on a stage and suddenly you're no longer afraid of the audience only struck by the wonder of the spotlights and how incredible it feels to be there still it takes everything in you to not hide your face in your hands you lower them onto your lap you can feel other people's gazes lingering on your face for a second longer But instead of ducking away, you lock eyes with that of the man you loved, and still do. Are you mad? He asks. I won't be if you sing. He laughs, then obliges. You join in. As your soft voice rises and falls with his rich baritone, snowflakes begin to float down from above, swirling and dancing in the breeze, but never touching the ground. Thank you for
4: joining us for this episode of the Weekend Write-In Podcast. For more episodes and links to more work by these authors, go to our website at www.weekendwritein.wordpress.com. The Weekend Write-In Podcast is co-hosted, produced, and edited by John Nedwell and Sylvan Drake. In this episode, royalty-free music is from festlionstudios.com, sound effects from BBC Sound Effects Archive, and freesound.org. Ugh, another raspberry. You have to be kidding me.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Something smells bad. Um Sovin, when was the last time you took a bath?
4: Eh, who can say? I mean, what's the point during lockdown? Uh, hang
0: on. You're wearing the same pajamas you wore for the last podcast. So? <clears throat> That's enough. If I'm coming out of this closet, it's wash-up time for you. No. It's not a choice.
4: Nope. Put me down.
0: All right. There you go. If you clean up behind the ears, I'll tell you my secret for finding the caramels.
4: Uh, okay. <coughs>